So Marcellus, we got Sterling on the line. What do you want to ask him? What do you think is some of the bad advice that you hear a lot? I would say the one thing is when you find a good deal, the money will follow. <laughs> That's true to an extent, but you just want to want to get one. I don't think it'll just, I mean, come out of thin air. Hey, I've got 50,000, 100,000 investing in your deal. But what I've seen the best, more so best practice, and this is what most people don't want to hear is that while you're finding the the deal is simultaneously, you want to be building and nurturing those relationships, getting soft commitments if you can. That way, once you do have the deal, that's you have that that money that's already there. And of course, some people may not pull through. So you want to have more soft commitments than you actually need. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast with your host, Brian Briscoe. In this podcast, we bring some of the top professionals in the apartment investing field to discuss various aspects of the apartment investing journey with the sole purpose of educating listeners to make wise investment decisions. The Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast is sponsored by Four Oaks Capital, bringing you high yield returns through apartment complex investing. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast. I'm your host, Brian Briscoe with Four Oaks Capital. I'm very excited for today's show. We got two amazing people on the line with us today. Uh, we got the Sterling White and Marcellus McKinley. So, uh, first of all, we're going to talk to to Sterling. I'm going to put his bio in the show notes so that uh, you guys can all you know read it. He's done a whole lot of great things in the multifamily space. Um, so that said, Sterling, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks. And I love the opener of the Sterling White. I haven't heard that before, but uh, appreciate that. And yeah, I mean, on here. Definitely. You know, so you you were someone, you know, I, I listened to your podcast for quite a while and, and you were somebody, you know, in this space when I got my my beginning that saw saw a lot of posts on social media, saw a lot of things, you know, you got your YouTube channel and everything else. So it, it's been very helpful. And, you know, I'm, I'm excited to have you on the show finally. So great, great turnaround here. So anyway, thank you. The Sterling White. <laughs> Yeah, and everyone on here, go ahead, get your popcorn ready because we're going to drop some bombs. We've got Marcellus on the other end, which this is his first podcast. So we'll yes. go ahead and give him a warm welcome. Yay. Hey, hey, Marcellus. Yeah, exactly. Hey, everyone's clapping everybody. So, so, yeah, Marcellus, this is fun. Hopefully, it's fun for you. But so that said, Sterling, go ahead and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Give us uh, an idea of your background and history and what got you into real estate. So I'll give everyone the cliff note, or I believe it's spark note version. So grew up in Indianapolis uh, and now live in uh, Houston, Texas, but born and raised there in the not so good parts of the city where you wouldn't want to walk your dog at night or even during the day and section eight housing, welfare, food stamps, and uh, grew up single mother, fraternal twin mm-hmm. brother. And there was one point in time where I actually almost lost my life at six years old due to a stray bullet. So wow. it was really one of those environments you never knew what if you would live the, the next day. But luckily, I was able to get out of that uh, environment. And then uh, I got started in construction. This was in 2009. Shortly after that, I saw that the wealthy and rich did not get that way by being mm-hmm. laborers in construction. So I started buying single families, bought 150, and then started buying a multifamily and then scale portfolio to just uh, close to about 500 units. So that's the the compact version. Of course, there's a lot to unpack there. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, Cliff Notes is, is, is kind of, I think, my generation. You know, when you said Spark Notes, I, I made a, 
you know, mental note to look that up, you know, like spark notes. All right. Got it. So is it cliff notes or is it spark notes? I always forget which one it is. I, I always use cliff notes. I mean, that's what I, it I'm, is. That's what I yeah. was meaning. Cliff. Notes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, there is but, spark uh, notes. <laughs> you know, back in the day, we used to go to the bookstore and buy these little yellow and black books that said cliff's notes on them or cliff notes on them. But, uh, um, I, I did a lot of book reports based off of cliff notes. I'll tell you that, but, uh, um, so yeah, lots to unpack there. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, were, were there any challenges getting into it? I mean, looking at your background, you, you, you just said you came from a rough, you know, rough neighborhood, rough area. Were there any challenges going from, from the background that you had to, to getting into the single family and then later multifamily? I would say the mindset, that was the biggest thing. I had so many limiting beliefs that were ground in me that mm-hmm. one, and this is, we'll get to a why at a later point, but is yeah. that I had someone who I woke up or I saw people on a daily basis that told me I wouldn't amount to anything and be enough. So mm-hmm. that was one limiting belief that I had that, oh, who am I to be able to start getting into real estate? That That's only for the utmost wealthy and success mm-hmm. and high achievement. So there was that. And then also that, hey, you have to have a large am- amount of capital in order to get started. So all these different limiting beliefs. But what I did, Brian, is mm-hmm. I had this very pivotal moment in my life in early 20s that changed the trajectory of my life. And one of those things that I ended up focusing was mindset. Huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is absolutely huge, you know, and I, I think, uh, you know, I'm 40 something years old, you know, I'll say I'm in my my uh, early 40s still. Um, but, uh, you know, 20 years ago, I would look at all this mindset stuff and think that's a bunch of crap. You know, I, I remember reading Think and Grow Rich, getting like a chapter and a half into it and saying, this is just dumb. But Looking back now at my life, I've had some major mindset shifts that have enabled me to do more and be more. So, you know, now as you know, older and wiser, that that's something that I am focused on. And I, I realize, you know, when I have my own limiting beliefs, you know, every once in a while I'll say something or do something, and you know, it's like, oh my gosh, I have a limiting belief right there. So, um, and that takes a different awareness, Brian. Yeah. I'm getting cold chills. You saying that most people don't realize that, but yeah, as you said it, you're like, damn, that's a limiting belief. I need yeah. to, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I I grew up in a house. Now, I, my childhood to your childhood, you know, I, I probably looked like you know the the rich and famous compared to to what you grew up in. I mean, my, my dad was a postal worker, you know, so he didn't make a, a ton of money. You know, never got shot at. Uh, well. Um, growing up, never got shot at, but uh, I'm military, but uh, we, we've definitely had people lob mortars and shoot rockets our direction. But, uh, um, you know, so, you know, me growing up, I, I had similar limiting to beliefs with money. You know, it was, it was just the, the scarcity mindset. There's only so much money doesn't grow on trees and, and things like that. And, you know, I, my, my dad, you know, I love him, but I, I think, you know, one, one of the things that he has, he has kind of a, an en- envy or not really an envy, almost a, a dislike for people who are rich, yep. if that makes sense. And I've noticed that recently in some of the things that I've said, you know, talking about people who are, you know, other side rich. And it's just like, wait a sec, you know, I, I shouldn't really be thinking like this because, you know, that's where I want to get, you know? So anyway, lots Sorry, of stuff there. Lots of and, stuff to I want to tell one quick story on how much mindset and shifts it takes. 
So I'm a part of Big Brothers, Big Sisters. It's an organization that yeah. gives back to people that are, well, I'm basically a mentor to kids who came from where I came from. But yeah. the short end of the story is that I went and took my little to Kings Island and I ended up buying a, a fast pass, which is a way for you to skip the line. Mm-hmm. And it was like 25 bucks more. And I also had my business partner too and friend. And he said, I don't know if we should pay the fast pass. I said, just, just get it. We go to amusement park. It wasn't as effective because we just got there. They just opened. But later on, the line started getting two hours, two and a half hours Mm -hmm. long for just a regular general admission. And then for us, it took 15 minutes. And that was another highlight. And I share that story because this is one concept that I learned is that rich people buy time. That's a (laughs) prime example of buying time that People are thinking so much of that $25 or 50 or however their, their family is, but they don't realize the amount of time they're saving. That is buying time. Yeah. I mean, another example, and this, this happened this morning, literally, you know, my um, one of my kids who's at grandpa- their, their grandparents' house mows our lawn and, you know, she's gone this week, you know, so she's not around to mow the lawn. And my wife said, hey, Brian, how about mowing the lawn today? You know, and I'm like, how about we pay somebody else to mow the lawn today? Because that, that's exactly what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, okay, I've, I've got a lot of income generating activities that I could do today, or I could spend an hour mowing the lawn. You know, I would much rather spend 25, 30 bucks, whatever the going, I don't even know what the going rate is in, in, in Idaho for mowing lawns, but I would rather spend the going rate because I guarantee you I can make more money in that hour time frame than I will save by, by doing it myself. And that's always another analogy that I use when I was on the single family side. I remember several owners that got burnt out on managing their properties. We would show up, they would be cutting the own grass. So <laughs> I'm like, why are you, if you enjoy cutting grass, by all means, cut your grass. But yeah. if it's something you're doing to save money, ah, it's just, yeah, but I'm glad you brought up that point too. You know, and I, I will say, will say this, you know, a lot, a lot earlier in my life, I was definitely cutting my own grass, but I did not have other income producing activities to replace it, you know? And so, you know, once, once I started realizing that, oh my goodness, I've got other things that I could do, you know, I, I can start this side hustle, this multi and multifamily for me was a side hustle. And when I started realizing that the side hustle was going to be as lucrative as it is, all of a sudden mowing my lawn, you know, had this rotten taste, it left a rotten taste in my mouth. It's like, you know what? I'll do anything but mow that lawn today. So anyway, I, I've been I've been paying for people to mow my lawn for you know a good four years right now and probably probably should have been a lot longer. Yeah. I mean, so. I outsource my grocery shopping. Uh that's one of the because if you <laughs> enjoy groceries, but it's just one of those things, it's just buying time. And yeah. it's you really just pay a little bit. You just pay, I think it was like 99 bucks a month or you give the person a tip. So worth it. So those are just some things that I've just learned over the years. Yeah. A lot, lot of things there. Definitely buy your time. And I think that's that's a big mindset shift that, that a lot of people have to go through is, you know, do what you can to buy your time back where it makes sense. So because you don't one get there. it back. Yeah. So Mindset shifts, you know, kind of enabled you to to get into multifamily. You know, let's let's talk a little bit about you know what you've done with multifamily so far and, and where you're at. And then as you talk about that, you know, if you if you'd walk us through one of your properties and you know the good, the bad, the the ugly on that too. 
Yeah. So the the company that I had uh, started in 2014 is that both my partner and I, we decided to go direct owner on all of our deals. And this was starting in 2017, where we were going the, the broker route, not having much success. And instead of sitting on the sideline and saying, hey, let's go ahead and wait for, a, let's say, a correction to happen, if, mm-hmm. but is we decided, well, let's take a pivot because I'm a firm believer that's what entrepreneurship is about, is taking the feedback, making the pivots. And then we started going direct and the first deal I bought was a 46 unit, bought a 50 unit, 280 units. And then the most recent was 156 unit apartment complex, all just starting with the initial call uh, to the owner. Right, right. Now you said, are you still in Indianapolis? I'm in Houston, Texas now as of three months ago. Okay. All right. Well, I'm in Idaho Falls as of one month ago, just moved from, from DC out here. So yeah. So, um, how, how you, how you guys doing settling down? I mean, that's, uh, takes a while. Uh, I would say, well, it's more so my stuff. We didn't move the, the business or company. Uh, so is we still have holdings in Indianapolis and mm-hmm. then also Louisville, but my stuff, I love it out here. It's a lot more vibrant. People are like, go, 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 go mm-hmm. versus in Indianapolis is a different, uh, culture, more con- conservative, I would say, and a good place to raise a family, but I enjoy this environment more. The humidity, I am going to have Ooh. to prep myself for. That's going to be deadly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just did the opposite. I mean, I went from DC, which is super vibrant to, you know, Idaho Falls has about a hundred thousand people. If you start counting the surrounding, you know, little towns, you know, you may hit a hundred thousand, but uh, um, I went from, you know, hot and humid DC to hot and dry. I think the humidity right now is like 20% here. You know, I go outside for five minutes. And I'm like, where's my water? Um, <laughs> the funny thing is I grew up about a hundred miles South of here in hot and dry. And I remember adjusting, you know, and really disliking the humidity, but now moving back, I'm just like water lotion. Oh my gosh. You know, things are super dry here, but uh, anyway, we digress, but let's let's talk specifically. Pick pick one of those uh, apartments that you have and, and tell us about it. You know how you found it, and uh, like I said, good, bad, and the ugly. Yeah, I would say that very first deal, which was the forty six unit, mm-hmm. uh, found it driving for dollars okay. uh, at that time. Driving a two thousand one Honda Accord, love Hondas, and I do too. <laughs> so drove past the property, saw that it needed work. The the signage was outdated. Parking lot looked like an alligator's back. So yeah, it needed some updating. Mm-hmm. And so this was a 46 unit apartment complex called the owner. So all this information is public record for anyone uh, and picked up the phone, asked them if they were interested in selling their property. And it just so happened to be this was their very last apartment that they were selling. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, because they sold all the others because they were shifting from being an operator to a debt collector. The property was about 60% occupied. Uh, so we were able to negotiate seller uh, financing. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, we we put $200,000 down mm-hmm. uh, and bought it for $900,000. So he carried back a loan of $700,000. Nice. And then we raised additional money to take care of the improvements for that property. All right. That that seems like a lot of work for your first apartment deal. Um, I know you did single family before. Were you were you into the fix and flips already or or is this like a venture into something brand new? So I did a handful of fix and flips, but mm-hmm. not like a heavy volume. But with yep. the single families is we're buying these and I'm going to say the the price of anywhere between about 
15000 to about $30,000. These were mm-hmm. C-class properties, C-neighborhoods. So some people that may be in California or New York are like, you couldn't even get a piece of a piece of a land for that. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> so we would buy those for that much and then put anywhere between about 10 to 15. So we had a construction vo- uh, background of doing that volume mm-hmm. and then it translated to, to multifamily, but it still was a different animal. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and that that's... uh maybe a bite that's a little too big to swallow for, for a lot of people on their first one, you know, 60% occupancy, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, capital expenses going in, a lot of renovations. Um, how'd that process end up going? Uh, so these are the trials and tribulations. Oh, so one is, learned, right? this is what I would say to everyone is always expect the unexpected and just buffer that because uh, it's likely to come up. It's a high probability something will come up that that year we had one of the worst winters in Indianapolis, which there's no way you could have saw that coming, but that's oh, no. what we had. And so that pushed back the, the, the project timeline in which we would be able to turn the units upgrade. So now that also trickles into our performance. So it was really like a, a snowball effect. Mm-hmm. And then uh, also is we went over budget as well. And yep. then, a boiler had went out and then the expenses, the boilers were eating at the, so all these things that we ended up uh, finding out once we got into the deal, and then we actually ended up selling it and then got a really great return to our investors from that. But we actually was in a position to where it didn't make sense for us to hold it due Mm -hmm. to everything that we were experiencing. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, you know, and I think a lot of people make, make similar mistakes on their first one, you know, going over budget, uh, you know, the unexpected for we closed on our first property October 2019, and it was going to be a light value add. We ended up uh, not renewing a lot of leases in February and March so we could renovate units. And unexpected for us was COVID. You know, it was just like, you know, rental market went to zero, and we're just like, oh gosh. You know, I guess we didn't see the writing on the wall. You know, prior to COVID, some people did, we didn't. You know, but. Uh, um, I could go into conspiracy theory with the you people, know, right? But yeah, 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 right. You know, there are lots of lots of things there, but it is what it is. I mean, we, we after that point, we had no control over a lot of things, but uh, you know, definitely expect the unexpected. I think is good. Have a buffer, which is a great lesson learned. You know, when when you're doing your capital expense budget, your innovation budget, you know, build in a buffer. You know, it doesn't have to be on every single line item, but build in a buffer. You know, ten percent or so. You know, and and same thing, have a reserve account going in. You know, we we usually put one month's rent, um, one month's income into a, a, an account that just sits there. So definitely have the buffers. So when you have those unexpected events, you can you can weather some storms. But uh, yeah. especially uh, on the heavy value add projects and older properties built built before 1970. Mm-hmm. So there was another deal that we bought, which is 156 units, and we're putting two million dollars into that. So these older properties especially as you get into it, things just start to come up. And then if you don't have that buffer that's allocated, then that's going to just eat right into your returns because you didn't uh, allocate that in your underwriting. Yeah. And I mean, for those older properties, plumbing is something that's been big for us. It's I mean, it's hidden behind the walls. You can't see the plumbing in a property, but you know that the plumbing is 50 years old and you're going to have plumbing issues. You know, I think every, depending on how old you know, A class, B class, C class and different ages have, have different problems, but uh, you know, definitely expect the unexpected. So Sterling, we're going to shift gears right now. And one, one question I'd like to ask everybody is what is your big burning why? 
I would say I have a mix of different whys and I pull from them at different times. I like to call it the cookie jar. But one is the environment that I grew up in is I don't want to go back to that. But my overarching why is that there is a kid right now, multiple kids that are where I was. Because when I was there is I did not know there was a way out. I was completely lost. And I was taking the being another statistic. I was taking that path. So I want to be the ideal and the message for those kids that, hey, I was where you were and this is how I was able to make it out. And this is how far I've gone. So that's one really burning desire of a why that I uh, do have. And just knowing that I only have so much time on this uh, planet. So just decide to go out there and live it and not have excuses. I see so many people come up with excuses that I could easily use the environment that I came from as an excuse, but I decided to take those lemons and make them into lemonade. I love it. I love it. I love that you're focused on giving back. I love you're focused on you know lending people that were in your situation a helping hand. And I know you mentioned the Big Brothers Big Sisters earlier. You know I think it's a great organization. So my hats off to you for doing that, and I appreciate it very much. Last question for you before we bring on Marcellus is uh, what's next for you? Uh, what's next to me is every day I just work towards becoming the strongest version of self. So. That is just me reaching to my next potential. And every year I want to look back and say, man, I've gone, I've grown, uh, I've, I've grown so much from the year prior to. And mm-hmm. during the whole COVID pandemic is I look through how I was able to grow and evolve through all of that. And it took some real, a lot of self-reflection yeah. uh, during that time. And so that's each year that I'm constantly working towards what's next is how can I become more aware uh, and also give back to people who came back from the environment who are in the environment that I came from. All right. I love it. I love it. Making yourself a better person, grow, grow to give back, you know, is what you're doing. So love it. All right. Another shift of gears here. We're going to bring on Marcellus, who's been patiently awaiting, you know, Marcellus, welcome to the show. Hey, Brian, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Hey, thanks a lot. And uh, um, for everybody, I'm going to put Marcellus's bio in the show notes as well. You know, so if you, if you want to learn a little bit more about him, you know, definitely check out the show notes. But uh, Marcellus, please tell us about yourself a little bit. Yeah. So um, kind of similar to you, Brian, I kind of uh, come from a military background. So I've been in for I'm currently active duty, been in for how long? Oh, 11 years now. Almost said ten, but uh, yeah, <laughs> been in for eleven years, now and um, down here in the Virginia Beach area, and um, yeah, just a little bit of background, just kind of similar to Sterling. I had a, you know, you know, there was a lot of a lot of that stuff was not available to me, or something that I thought was anything I could even aspire to. You know, thankfully, I, you know, I didn't have some of those similar experiences, but yeah, it was definitely something where I thought that that was kind of for, you know, the elite. And, you know, it wasn't until relatively recently, you know, I think it was in my last assignment in Denver, you know, when I really kind of started to understand like the power of real estate and, you know, what it can do for you when you apply it properly. And, you know, I was like, man, this is pretty awesome. So, you know, originally started out, you know, just kind of buying primaries and keeping them and stuff like that, primary residences. And then during COVID, I actually got an approach from a realtor friend in regards to like, hey, you want to go in on this deal? I know you're interested in real estate. And uh, she offered opportunity to be like a limited partner in a 16 unit here in Newport News. And so, you know, I kind of looked at the numbers. I was like, hey, this this makes sense. And 
you know, after I kind of started lo looking more into it, I was like, man, this is pretty awesome. So, you know, I've done yeah. about four, I was at, been at LP in about four or five deals now, and I'm also trying to go active. So yeah, yeah that's kind of me in a nutshell. Nice, nice. Now, um, a couple, a couple questions on that one. You're you're at 11 years in the military, and I think most people know at 20 years you get a pension. Where's your Where's your point of no return? Where's your line in the sand? So, I think the biggest thing for me, Brian, is more so what I said from the very beginning is that I wanted to have fun, work mm -hmm. with awesome people, and do awesome missions, and. Yeah. The thing is, for me, is if I continue to get blessed with opportunities to do cool stuff, I'm going to continue to do that. But, you know, also with the real estate thing of, you know, obviously a lot of the benefits that it provides in general, like the biggest thing for me, too, is that like if me and my family had the ability to be say, you know, thanks, Air Force has been real fun, but it ain't been real fun. And, you know, be able to yeah. just, you know, punch out from there. Yeah, I, I had the same philosophy. My, my wife and I always looked at it, you know, one, one set of orders, one tour at a time. And right. I enjoyed every single minute of it until I got stationed at the Pentagon. And uh, I, I think the, the last three years, that was, that was my last assignment. And by the time this podcast airs, I'll be retired. You know, right now I'm still active duty, but um, the last three years were the longest, you know, but anyway, that said, I mean, you've talked a little bit about, you know, why you're doing this, but if you could just boil things down, uh, what is your big burning why? Yeah. So I definitely think the the big why for me in regards to real estate is, you know, a lot of the a lot of the ability to pour resources into, you know, things that are going on in the world. You know, like I'm a big believer of not complaining about problems. You should do something to solve them. Yeah. Um, and one that's kind of really near and dear to me and my wife, she works for an anti-human trafficking nonprofit. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's something that has been made very well aware of and you know, and it's not something that's in far flung reaches across the world, you know, like in Southeast Asia or a lot of things that people expect. But, you know, it's happening right here in our in our homes in America, you know, and there's a, and there's major issues with that. So, yeah, I'm still in the kind of beginning stage of trying to figure that out. But that's just the biggest thing for me is a why to be able to have the resources to be able to pour into communities, to pour into people, to pour into organizations that are fighting things like that that, you know, we can make a difference that we don't have to wait for, you know, politics or things that to catch up that, you know, people that have the resources and the ability can help provide the NGOs and people that are doing that and be able to do it in the best way possible. So that, that's, I would say that's my biggest why I'm kind of saying to Sterling, I got a bunch. So. Yeah. You know, I, I love it. And, you know, just, just so happens, it seems like a match made in heaven because, you know, you're, you're both, you're right along the same lines, you know, you're both, uh, and I, I'm going to like make this hashtag go viral, you know, you're both trying to grow to give, you know, and that's, uh, I, I think that's amazing. It's something that's near and dear to my heart as well. I mean, um, slightly different causes, you know, I'm, I'm looking more at you know, things that equalize the playing field, you know, whether it's education or um, opportunities, but I mean, the, the human trafficking is a big problem worldwide. So another great, great, you know, cause, and, you know, I'm glad you're, Glad you're involved in that one. So here comes, I've got a lot of favorites, but here comes my favorite part of the podcast. I'm going to hand you the mic, Marcellus. So Marcellus, we got Sterling on the line. What do you want to ask him? Sterling, so first and foremost, man, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to like learn about you and hear your story again. And kind of saying as Brian, man, it's, I'm kind of geeking out right now because, you know, just seeing you in bigger <laughs> pockets and 
stuff like that. You've been you've the been instrumental on my Mike, journey, right? so I just want to say thanks <laughs> the for that. Oh yeah, my apologies. <laughs> the Sterling Mike. I'll, I'll have to change life. my uh, Instagram <laughs> handle and everything from a branding to the Sterling. The <laughs> Sterling Myers. Yeah, you heard it All first here. So, All caps. Okay. Yeah. So, Sterling, I think the first question I have is: What role have systems played in you developing your business? And like, what are the some of the biggest things that you've developed from like a systems perspective that has really helped take you to the next level? So this is one thing looking back that I wish I would have done more of. And now I've got that hat on every single thing I do that even if it's new, I'm documenting what I do and putting a system in place as I'm actually doing it. That's how much of a system and processes person I am now. So I've had to shift from more of the, if you've read the book, E-Myth, he talks about the technician, which is the one actually always in there doing all the work and all the trenches. And the entrepreneur is more of the visionary and just putting more of how can we make things better process systemized. So one of the key things that I did systemize was the acquisitions arm, which was we take the approach of going direct to owner. So formally did have a script didn't have ways to follow up, didn't have a CRM, all these different things. So I just ended up finding people out there doc, uh, who was doing what I uh, wished to do, replicated their script, and then also started documenting the, the, the things that got me the most success and just basically put those in place. And then as started hiring people, just started handing things off to them that way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'll say the same thing. I, I mean, we have built systems, you know, from from the beginning. You know, it, it's one of those things where, you know, you you don't realize you need the systems till you don't have them in a lot of cases, and you you look at building the systems. But you know, we we beg, borrowed, and stole from anybody and everybody who is doing the same thing. You know, from our mentors and everything else. And just to add to what Sterling said, one thing we did is we we taken our acquisition slow. You know, we we didn't jump into a 500 unit apartment complex off the bat. You know, our first eight acquisitions, our first seven acquisitions were sub hundred units, right? So it was just, you know, slow build so we can develop those systems so that now we're in a position where we have systems and we can scale. Gotcha. So it sounds like, yeah, like, like the book, nail it, scale it, you know, you got your systems down, you made sure that everything was good to go kind of on those test cases. And then you Mm -hmm. kind of, kind of grew it. That makes sense. And and from a tactical standpoint, the platform that I use is Asana. And that's not a plug for anyone who's on here. You can sign up for a free account uh, and, and you can even keep it free. And so with that is that's where we actually put everything. You can use Google Drive and put everything in a Google Word doc or a spreadsheet. But now we're just migrating everything from those just to Asana to have everything in one place. Because one of the core values that I have that I constantly enforce to our team is less is more. Uh, because if we have all these things in different places is people will figure out a way to break things. And I want to mi- mitigate that as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That makes complete sense. No, I appreciate it, guys. Thank you. So, you know, obviously I'm still kind of doing a W-2, still working. How do you think people that are moonlighting should approach, you know, jumping into multifamily? So I would not be the the best one to, to answer that question because just myself, I've always been in entrepreneurship, always. I When I've had a job, it's been part-time and I've used those funds to, to fund my ventures. So in early 
in my early 20s, I just quit like the, the part times all together to focus full time on real estate. So myself is I wouldn't be the, the, the best person to offer an experience share because I've never entirely been like a full time W2 and had that and then made the shift. Tell you, tell you what, I'll take that one. You know, the, the big burning why I, I would say, and this is a book by Simon Sinek. Um, I came up with this philosophy before reading the book, but start with your why. Okay. And always put that in the forefront. Always remember why you're doing things and that's going to help you to be able to prioritize properly, you know? So um, something else that I, I really like and appreciate Stephen Covey's seven habits book in there, he, he has a phrase that he says, you don't prioritize your schedule, you schedule your priorities. Okay. So, you know, in, instead of looking at everything that's on your schedule and, you know, figuring out, you know, what's most important, look at what's most important and then put it on your schedule. You know, so I just recommend carving out time every day. And if it means you stop playing, you know, games on your phones or stop watching Netflix for a little bit, you know, carve out, you know, an hour or two you know, every day to be able to do some consistent effort. And I mean, it's, it's like, you know, I could use a lot of cliches, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day, you know, or stuff like that. But uh, I think daily consistent effort is what's going to get you there. But for me, you know, reviewing my why every morning, reviewing my goals every morning, reminded me every morning why I was doing it. And that helped me every single day to be able to say, okay, here's a time I have allotted to growing my multifamily business. Let's go. Right. Yeah. Great points. And just making it happen is, and this goes back to when I remember that when I was living in my friend's den, when I was really just getting things off the ground is I would uh, go to my, uh, I would wake up in the morning. I would train because I was training for a, a Guinness world record. That's a separate uh, story in itself, but I would train at the gym. And then I was working for my mentor for completely free. I would do that from about nine to four or whatever he needed within this business. And then I would work on my Amazon business because that's what I was doing to basically fund my overhead. And then that night I would work on the actual real estate business that I was growing in itself. So what Brian just mentioned is just mm -hmm. prioritizing it that each and every day, because there's a, a great book by uh, Dan Hardy. It's The Compound Effect that people don't realize how much when you're doing something consistently day in and day out, that if you zoom out and you do that, that's where you start to read, see the results. People don't realize how much they can actually accomplish in a decade versus just looking at things from a year by year basis. Yeah, right. absolutely. Love it. Okay. So I got to ask now, cause you mentioned it. So what, what world record were you training for? Uh, so it was the world's fastest fireman carry mile. So oh. I, I carry someone in a fireman's position, like yeah. the, the person on the, the cover of Hack Ridge, Saw, or however the print pronounced, but a fireman's position, yeah. equivalent weight to me for the dif distance of a mile. I didn't break the record, but that was another aha moment for me because I had the limiting belief mm -hmm. of having the fear of failure. And when I bombed that, I bombed it in front of a ton of people. It was all over the news. And I realized that failing is not so bad. No. Now, did you come close or did you no, no, like have a bad. catastrophic end? It was, I dropped the person at the 800 meter mark. So it wasn't even, which yeah. is halfway through oh. the attempt. Yeah. Yeah. But well, the, I've done a lot of fireman's yeah. carries before, and I could not imagine doing that for even 800 meters. So, 
you know, I mean, no I'm, I'm still impressed. I mean, bam. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and the person I was training with one, my back went out about uh, two months into the training. So I could have stopped there, but I did it. And then also a, a couple of weeks prior to the event, the person I was training with this whole entire time backed out and I still ended up pushing through. And one thing is the day of the attempt, I actually almost gave up. There was this little voice in the back of my head that said, Sterling, you don't have to do it. Go ahead and just walk away. It's completely fine. And mm-hmm. then that's when I ended up breaking through and just ended up doing it anyway. So yeah, that, that's by far one of the highlights I've experienced. Wow. Interesting. That's awesome. All right. So I had a kind of another question. We talked about it a little bit, but just like, how would you say like your experience in residential has helped you in multifamily? Do you think that there's been a lot of connection with that? Yeah, I would say there has been quite a bit of connection, especially dealing with that amount of volume of Mm -hmm. that many single families and also the construction as well. But the main thing was really the momentum was able to take all of that the the momentum from that and then as we transitioned to that first deal which was a 46 unit mm-hmm. that we didn't even and this was going back to mindset i didn't even look at oh man this is a 46 unit apartment complex there's no way that we can uh take this down we use the momentum and the success that we had from the single families that oh if we can do this many single families 46 unit apartment complex that's not an issue yeah gotcha yeah i, I only had two single families and and so that's that's yeah, not, not really. I, I wish I would have had more experience with single families, but uh, my experience just didn't translate. I think if you have something like Sterling had where you had a business based around it. Absolutely. Yeah, I could definitely, I could definitely see the connection with that. So, yeah. So I guess another kind of question I had just kind of generally going on, what do you think is some of the bad advice that you hear a lot on like, you know, just a lot of real estate, you know, people going out there? What are some things that you hear? You're like, ah, I don't know if I agree with that. I would say the one thing is when when you find a good deal, the money will follow. <laughs> that, that's true. I was, was going to ex- say the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that's true to an extent, but you just want to want to get one. I don't think it'll just. I mean, come out of thin air. Hey, I've got 50,000, 100,000 investing in your deal. But what I've seen the best, more so best practice, and this is what most people don't want to hear, is that while you're finding the the deal is simultaneously, you want to be building and nurturing those relationships, getting soft commitments if you can. That way, once you do have the deal, that's you have that that money that's already there. And of course, some people may not pull through. So you want to have more soft commitments than you actually need versus getting the deal. And then let's say you've got 30, 60, 90 days closing. And then you've got your due diligence period where likely you're not raising money because you don't know if it's actually going to be a, a deal worthwhile pursuing. And now you've got a limited amount of days and now you're starting to raise money. That's where you can get yourself in a tight, tough spot, especially in today's market where your closing is can be even more shorter. Yeah, I, I would agree. That is the one thing that the one fallacy that I hear over and over and over again. And nothing to add there. Great job, Sterling. Yeah. yeah. And I know there's others, but that's the, the biggest one that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. So kind of kind of related on that, you know, what do you what do you guys kind of say is like the ratio that you're looking for in regards to, you know, raising money? Do you like, you know, kind of like the wedding rule, you know, like percent of the people are actually going to show up? Like how do how do you guys typically look at that in regards to like soft commits? Mm-hmm. So we'll raise anywhere between about 
15 to 20% more soft commitment. So if we're doing a raise of, let's say our average raise being $1 million is we'll get soft commitments of about 1.2 to 1.3, because out of that, likely that 200 to $300,000, people may get cold feet, they may find another deal, whatever happens. So that's why we'll raise more than that. And it's much better. And this is one thing that we realized to be in a position to to turn people down because you don't have a, enough spots for them versus being in the reverse that, oh, well, we wanted to get as much people and we actually lowered the, the, the barrier and didn't raise enough because we wanted to get everyone in there. So it's gotcha. better to be in the other position. Yes, right. you'll get some pushback from that, but it's better from your side to be in that spot. Yeah. Okay. I, I would say on your first deal, you definitely want to overcommit. You know, we we've gotten better at vetting people, right. so to speak. I mean, I remember the first deal, the first person that I soft committed, a couple of things I didn't ask him is where the where's the money coming from? All right. What I didn't know is he was selling a house mm. and he was going to use the proceeds from that house to invest in our deal. And the house sold for a lot less than he thought it would. You know, we, we've also had people who say, hey, I'm going to use my retirement funds. And we didn't know that they did not set up a self-directed retirement account yet. You know, so you got to um, roll that over and yeah, yeah. yeah. And it takes t- it takes time. So I, I would say on, on the first deal, you probably want, you know, I, I'm going to say 50 percent more in soft commits than what you're raising um, just just to have that buffer. But um, and then, then of course, there's going to be people who who just don't come through. But over the years, you know, we've gotten better at, like I said, vetting people first. So when we talk to them about investing, you know, and when we tell them, hey, you need to, you're going to have to wire your money, you know, within a couple of weeks, right? Where's that money sitting right now? You know, and you know, look look for the things that uh, that are going to be like the disqualifiers, right? So um, that's helped us narrow down our our, our numbers between people who soft commit and people who actually commit. But I'd say on your first deal, you know, over raise as much as you can. And on subsequent deals, you can fine tune it later, but we're closing on a property next week. You know, we, we had soft commits for not including what four Oaks is putting in, you know, we, we needed to raise 2.4 ish. We have soft commits for 3 million and um, we did tell a handful of people, we told them from the beginning, first come, first serve. We did tell a handful of people that, Hey, you guys are too slow. Be faster next time. That, that'll happen. And then that's also one thing that when you're, when you're in that spot, as uh, Brian mentioned that you would give them, Hey, we need your funds by X, Y, Z date, or mm-hmm. we'll just have to move on to another uh, investor. So I would say when you're first starting out, it's okay to ask those hard questions because that helps you out in the, the long run to not put yourself in a tough spot. Yeah, absolutely. Hard, hard lesson learned for us when we were you know counting on money and then all of a sudden, uh, it's not there. But uh, and, all right. And then also another uh, lesson that I want to uh, share with you as well, Marcellus, is you also have to vet the other person too, whether or not they're a good fit to invest with you. Because let's say you're a buy and hold investor and they say, well, I want to get my cash in and out is what I've learned is it's best to just move on. That's just not a fit because if you do have that person invest with you, that's just going to be a nightmare. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, this has been an amazing conversation. I just looked at the clock and yes. we're you know, we're out of time. You know, I had I not glanced up, I think we probably could have talked for another hour here. But thank you so much to the both of you for coming on the the, the show today. Um, one last question for each of you. And Sterling, you get to go first. How can listeners learn more about the Sterling White? Yeah, so I've got, you can follow me on Instagram, Sterling White Official. One more time, that is Sterling White Official. And then uh, on my uh, company website, Sonder Investment Group. That is S-O-N-D-E-R, investmentgroup.com. And yeah, just go ahead and slide into the DM, which is direct message for those of you with any questions you happen to have here to help. Awesome. Hey, thanks a lot, Sterling. I appreciate it. Marcella, same question for you. How can listeners learn more about you? Yeah, so I think the best way to reach me right now is on social media. I think uh, my LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me. Um, Just hit me up there. Same name. Looking forward to it. All right. Awesome. And we're going to put links to your website, social media accounts, everything in the show notes. So if you're interested in talking with, you know, Sterling or Marcellus, you know, look up their their contact information in the show notes and reach out to them. All right. That said, once again, thank you so, so much. And uh, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast today, brought to you by Four Oaks Capital. If you'd like to know more about how to invest in apartment buildings or want to be a guest in our show, visit our website at fouroakscapital.com slash podcast or email us directly. If you're still listening, you obviously like the show. So pull out your phone, tap subscribe and leave us a five star rating on your favorite podcast app. And we'll see you again next week.